Would you join me in praying for our time together this morning? Lord Jesus, as we have already prayed and sang, may your presence rain down this morning. When, when the rain kicked up uh, during the announcement time, I was thinking, I said to Natalie, this is what it would be like when the Lord rains his presence. Not a drizzle, a downpour. Lord, we sing things like flood this place with your presence. That's not a gentle thing. May you invade this place this morning. May you continue to pour out your presence. God, as we come to, to hear from your word, as we come to, to talk and learn together, may your presence be made known in this place. May we have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to understand this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to kind of recap uh, where we were last week because we're, we're building on top of that this morning. Uh, we started looking at the mission of Jesus. We actually started two weeks ago in Easter. It's what we were talking about. Uh, and, and the way to sum up Jesus' mission, he actually summed it up in one sentence. And it's this in Luke 19. Jesus says, for the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. If you had to sum up everything Jesus taught, everything Jesus did and is still doing, this one sentence sums it up. It is to seek and save the lost. Those who are currently wandering from God. We, we looked at the parable of the lost sheep who wandered away. What was the shepherd's response to that sheep? Church. Went to find it searched for it, left the 99 to go find the one. And we looked at a couple different parables where Jesus is trying to drive this point home. His entire ministry while on earth and now beyond has been to seek and to save the lost. That is our king's mission. And we have been called onto mission with our king. We have been called to do the things that he did to seek and to save the lost. What is your purpose here on this earth? It is to know your king and to make him known to others. It's why we exist. I used to say it's why we weren't tractor beamed up to heaven at the moment we said, yes, Lord, I do. He went, cool, you're done here and brought us home. Did, did that happen to anyone in this room? Me neither. We're still here, why? Because our king has a mission for us. And it's the same mission that he was on. It's continuing his ministry 2,000 years later. And until he comes back again, we have the same mission to seek and to save the lost. One of the ways that we've been saying it here, and hopefully you're starting to get tired of this. That means maybe it's breaking through. Every man, woman, and child has the right, the God-given right to have repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. The what kind of news of Jesus Christ? The good news. We forget that sometimes. We'll touch on that later. It is our mission to see this happen in our small corner of the world. To see every person that we come in contact with that is our heart's desire that they have opportunity to hear and respond to the best news they could ever hear. Our world and our culture are changing. We talked last, time, last week, they're changing in pace and direction like we have never seen before. It's unprecedented how quickly change occurs now in our culture. With technology, with social media, with all of these things that, that can be huge blessings. They're not evils that we're to avoid. But we have to recognize they have brought about change at a pace and into a direction that we have never seen before. We must change with culture if we're going to meet the needs of people. Now, by that, I don't mean that we need to change and become like culture. But we need to understand that if we're going to meet people's needs and the way that they go about having those needs met changes, we need to change as well if we're to serve them. Yes? We have to reimagine the mission that God has given us if we're going to see the kingdom advance in Elkins. 
This is what we spent our time talking about last week. We have to reimagine the mission. For far too long in the church, the mission has been, it's your job to invite people to church. It's your job to put money in the donation and then hope that the professionals take care of it for you. That's what you have been taught since you were a child. That's, what, that's the way church has set itself up, is that your job is to come in and sit quietly, much like the kids, no running, no climbing on things, don't get too wild, just come and sit. Make sure you hit the offering on your way out. God bless you. The way that we, we referred to this last week, because this is a... a a trap that the church has fallen in for 2,000 years now. And the way that I referred to it last week is the temple mindset. God has an address. It's that building over there. If you need to see him, there are some professionals that will help you. Maybe I'll give you directions and I'll give you a recommendation of, of, of which of God's houses I think is best. But if you really want to find him, he's over there. That's how it was all through the Old Testament. God literally had a street address. He had a temple in Jerusalem, and if you wanted to go see him, here's the steps you take. Here's who you go talk to. There will be people in these big robes and all of this stuff. They'll be able to answer your questions. He's over there. Many of us have been taught that church kind of works the same way. Your job, if you have a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, a family member that's hurting in some way or that, man, needs to hear the gospel or is asking questions, for far too long, your job has been to schedule them an appointment with me. Now, not actually with me because I would have put that right back on you, but that's what the church has said. They, you need to get them in front of a professional Christian so that they can, show, they can answer their questions and they can show them the, the way they need to go. This is never the way it was meant to be set up. This is never the way that Jesus did ministry or that Jesus called his followers to do ministry, but we continually fall into this trap. We must reimagine the mission that God has given us. There must be a new front line for evangelism because let me tell you, it's not going to be in this room. If we want our friends to know Jesus Christ, it's not going, okay, well, we got to get them to church 1030 on Sunday. That's how you get people to know Jesus for far too long, that's been our method, and our method has to change. There needs to be a new front line for evangelism, and it's going to be your dining room table. It's going to be your front porch. It's going to be standing around your grill, or at the soccer fields or the baseball fields where your kids play. Where we work, live, and play, that's where evangelism is supposed to take place. Because here's the thing, hear me, it's not my job. It's our job to see the kingdom advanced. So we have to get out of this old way of thinking. It's about getting people into the church building because it doesn't work anymore. It hasn't for a long time. We have to reimagine the mission. It is now each and every one of us taking the good news of Jesus to where we work, live, and play. I don't know if you heard it, but both with Christine um, and with Sherry, when they were coming up and sharing about, again, I make jokes because I'm actually sad about them leaving. And one of the reasons I'm really sad about them leaving is because both of them, when they were talking about it, this is the place, we're moving to the place where God wants us to be. Why? Sherry said, yeah, I think that would be a really good place where I could minister to people. She, she was looking at, okay, where do I need to move? Not in terms of, which, which would fit me the best, which would, God, which one would give me the best opportunity to go and witness to people, to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ with those that need it more? This is the, the lens that they have put on. They have reframed, reimagined the mission. And it hurts to see them go because they get it. And they're not the only people in here, but like that's one of the things that I love about them is you guys are examples of people who are going, my life, the job that I have, the house that I have, the, the friends that I have, that is a mission from God, and you take it seriously, and it's refreshing to me. So thank you for that. I know they're also the, the two groups of people who would love to be put on the spot uh, and called out and praised in front of everyone the most, so that's also fun. Historians believe that 80% of evangelism in the early church 
was done by, and I put this in quotes, because they didn't, ordinary Christians. I don't even know what that means. But basically they're saying it wasn't done by clergy. It wasn't done by the apostles or by the evangelists. 80% of evangelism in the early church was done by ordinary Christians explaining themselves to their friends and family. Because they lived life in such a different way that it demanded an explanation. And their friends, their family, their co-workers would come to them and go, why do you do that? Or why don't you do this? You always say this or you never say that. You, why? People were intrigued by the lives that the early believers lived and this was the front line for evangelism. This is how we saw the church growing like crazy. It wasn't because of the 12 apostles and they were just so good at preaching. It was because people were actually living out their faith in proximity to non-believers and the world saw it and went, what is that? And in explaining themselves to them, people were intrigued and drawn closer to the King of Kings. 1 Peter 3.15, we, we've talked about this verse a number of times, you know it. But honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. People should be looking at your life and going, your life demands an explanation. Why are you like this? How could you be like this? You just went through something really difficult and you're not lashing out. You're not binge drinking. You're not, I mean, whatever the vice may be. How? What? Like, it sounds almost like a legal term. Like you're going to be cross-examinated and you need to be ready to give a defense. For what? For your hope. Why do you have hope? How? Life is hard. How do you live like this? And that we, each and every single one of us, should be ready to give a defense. This is how the kingdom is going to be moved forward. Because each of us view the relationships that God has given us, the place where God has planted us, as our mission field, as our responsibility. We have to reimagine the mission. People paid attention to the gospel in the early church because someone they knew spoke well to them about it. When we revert back to that temple mindset, the gospel stalls out and the kingdom fails to, to advance because that's never the way that it was meant to be. The greatest challenge that church leaders have today is to mobilize a sufficient number of Christians to live missionally where they work, live, and play is to help you understand that where you work, live, and play, every aspect of your life, God is trying to raise you up on mission with him there. He's already there. Do you need to take God to the soccer field? He's already there working and moving. We just need to have eyes to see it. God, are you opening any doors today at practice? Is there anyone I can talk to that just needs some hope? Anyone that just needs, like, maybe they just need a friend right now, whatever it might be. God, where are you working and moving, and how can I join you in that? We need to be mobilized to live on mission with the king everywhere we go. I'm not even telling you you need to go to all of these extra places, and you need to build all of these extra relationships. None of us have the margin for that. You already have the mission fields in your life. We just have to have the eyes to see it. People will pay attention to the gospel when they see it being lived out in countercultural ways in our everyday lives by people they know and trust, living a life that just demands an explanation. If we're going to see the kingdom advance in Elkins, we must reimagine the mission that God has given us. Kingdom advancement in Elkins depends on our personal relationships. Not how many flyers we can send out, or is our website good enough? Is our sign good enough? Our sign is not good enough. Our sign is actively bad. We're working on it, but like, I praise the Lord that like, whoo, that's not our hope. Our relationships are what God is going to use to advance the kingdom in Elkins, if we have the eyes to see it. Does this make sense, church? Yes. It's really quiet, and that can mean one of two things. So it's the good one, right? Yeah. All right. Uh, I didn't want to say it, but I'm like, uh, okay, okay. 
We have to reimagine the mission that God has given us, and we must reframe the message. Our world and our culture are changing, and we must change as well if we're going to meet the needs of people. Now, when I talk about reframing the message, some of you sit up a little taller. Uh Uh-oh, where's he going to go? Is he talking about changing the message? No, not at all. We talked about this last week. The message of the gospel is Christ's perfect life, his death, and his resurrection on our behalf. This is the core to the gospel, and it must never change. So I am not at all talking about changing the gospel. What I'm talking about is changing our approach to telling people the greatest story they've ever heard. For for years and years and years, there was some underlying things that kind of everyone agreed on. And so we could just kind of go straight into, here's what, like you're a sinner. Jesus is here to deal with our sin. And we could just jump right into it. But as our culture has changed, we don't have some of those jumping off points that we've learned. In the past, there has always been an agreement that there was a higher power out there. Until the last 60 years or so, any culture in the world you would go to, there was an agreement that there was, there was something behind everything. There was this greater power out there. And with that came a sacred order. There was this way you had to kind of approach that higher power. There was a, a, a religion, if you would, that was the pathway to get toward that higher power. And there was a moral truth. There, there was a way that that higher power told us we needed to live. Here's the things that are right. Here's the things that are wrong. Now, we have always forever fought over who and what that higher power was. Is there one or is there thousands? Like, are, what, what do we call it? What do we name it? What is that higher power like and how do we begin to approach it? We fought over what moral truths like our trump other ones but there's always been this agreement that there is a higher power and there's a way he's called us to live. And with that kind of came this idea that none of us really measures up. In any culture, whatever religion it was, everyone was well aware I'm falling short. None of them did it right. None of them claimed to be doing it right, but there was at least something they were aiming for. Is this making sense, church? We no longer have that in culture. We no longer have that as a guarantee that whoever we're talking with, working with, living with, that they have those kind of same foundational beliefs. The the world has changed and moved directions away from that. This is the first time in human history where we don't have this shared belief, kind of, again, across cultures, that there is this higher power and there's this way that we are supposed to live. We ought to do these things. We ought not to do these things. This is the first time in human history where that's not our common starting point. Tim Keller, in his book, How to Reach the West Again, where this has, which has sparked a lot of my thoughts on this and taken some pieces from him, he says this, Past evangelistic strategies assumed that everyone held this shared set of beliefs about a sacred order, that there was a God, an afterlife, a standard of moral truth, and a sense of sin. We might call these the religious dots that evangelists could assume of their hearers. Evangelism, then, was simply connecting the dots. Everyone kind of had these same dots. We called them different things. We we said, well, this one's kind of over this one, but they were there. And the point of evangelism was kind of going... Hey, your God like doesn't work. Let, let me show you what my God can do. Your way of approaching God, you know in your heart it doesn't work. Let me show you my way of approaching. Like we, it was connecting the dots for people. We find ourselves for the first time in history, a lot of people just don't have these dots. There's this Western secularism, that's the big term for it, which means you don't need any kind of religion. You are your own God. There is no God out there. There is no moral absolutes. There's no real truth. It's your truth and it's my truth. And if they conflict, we can both just go, you do you, I'll do me, and we'll both be fine. Because there's also no consequences once we die. Because there is no God. This is an incredibly commonly held belief now 
and we find ourselves, historically speaking, in brand new territory. So if we keep bringing our old methods of sharing the gospel with people, they're not working. Most of us have been taught, if we were taught at all, how to present the gospel in a way that answers questions that people aren't asking anymore. People used to ask questions about an afterlife. And so you could say, hey, do you know where you're going when you die? And they would go, man, I hope not hell. And, and, and we could go, okay, let's talk about that. And we could talk about faith in Christ. Now they just go, nowhere. There, nothing happens. You're just done. That's the end of it. People aren't asking questions about the afterlife. People aren't asking questions of how do I measure up in this sense of morality that I have? Because when you take God out of the picture, all of a sudden there's no more ought to or ought not to. There's no like kind of just sense of guilt, sense of sin, like I'm not measuring up. We have in a culture did in the best way they know how. They try to relieve that pressure from people. Let's just remove God from the equation. Therefore, you have nothing left to feel guilty about, right? We know it doesn't work. We'll get to that here in a minute. People aren't asking, what do I do with my sin? And so to sit down with somebody and go, the Romans road, let's open up. Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. People are like, no. You can't tell me what sin is. You can't tell me what's right and wrong. You can't tell me what truth is. They're not asking those questions. And so if we just keep trying the same methods, we're missing. We're answering questions that no one is asking. I'm going to ask again, is this making sense, church? Yes. Okay. There will be a pop quiz here in a moment, so we'll find out. Someone much smarter than me, I wasn't able to track down exactly who said it. But they said, looking at the way that we approach people with the gospel, they said we need to question people's answers before answering their questions. We need to look critically at the culture and go, what answers are people coming up with for these deep-seated questions of life? Everyone is, is trying to come up with these answers that makes them feel okay. But the way that culture has shifted, people are answering questions in a different way. It used to just be, yeah, I just try to deal with the guilt and the shame, and I hope I'm good enough, or I hope. And now they said, the way I deal with it is I've just erased God from the whole thing. And it's just about me and how I want to live and how people are answering questions in a different way. And we have to look critically at culture and go, what is it really promising people? What is culture really offering people? Because it's different than it was 50, 60 years ago. And then that has to inform our approach with the gospel. We must learn to question people's answers before answering their questions. As I was thinking through this, I kept asking questions like with them and they and those people. Like, what is, what is culture offering them? What are those people looking for? And then it hit me like, wait, I'm just as steeped in culture as everyone else. What do I find so tempting? What, what is catching my eye and pulling me away? What are the, the answers that culture is giving that I buy into pretty naturally? And at some point, the Holy Spirit speaks and goes, hey, don't chase that. But like I'm, I'm intimately familiar with the promises that culture's making because I keep falling for them. We all do. So it, by way of looking at culture critically, when I say critically, that doesn't mean standing up and judging, like not that kind of critical, but critical thinking. Going, what's really going on here? What's really behind this? As we look at culture critically, what kinds of things is culture promising people today? And this is where we're actually, this is your pop quiz. This is where we're actually going to talk and, and try to figure some of this out together. I have a very short list here that is not exhaustive in any way. And quite frankly, I don't want to use it. I want for you to share and to talk about what you see. Think of the ads, the headlines, the most shared videos, whatever it is. There's a promise attached to every one of them. There's something we're drawn to in every one of them. That's why they're so popular. What is culture promising people today? I've heard a lot about like finding your truth. Okay. Like, I've heard that a lot lately. We even heard it one of our speakers today, Gavin, about today's culture and encouraging people to find their truth. Like, what makes you happy? What makes you, you know, yeah. your truth? Right. Right. Big, right. 
Yeah. So what culture is promising that you can find your truth. And in finding your truth, you can kind of like rest secure. I'm, I'm doing what I need to be doing. Like, yeah, you do you. Like, you know, and so there, again, thinking critically, there's always something behind it. They say, you need to find your truth. What does finding your truth give me? This sense of peace and security. I don't have to feel guilty. I don't have to feel ashamed, whatever it is, because it's my truth. What else? What does culture promise us? I think the first thing that came to my mind with this conversation is freedom. Yes. Yeah, so this idea of freedom, I, I, I heard it taught on this week as I was studying some of this stuff, and freedom kept coming up, and somebody made the statement that I think is true. The way that the world views freedom will always make you a slave to something. Because you're free as long as you do this, as long as you look at it this way, as long as you, like, it will always make you a slave to something. You're free as long as you're happy. So now you're even a slave to your own happiness, which then you always feel like you're falling short because is anyone happy 100% of the time? 90%, 80%, like nowhere near that. And so you're always this slave to the feeling that you have to go find if you're going to be free or whatever it may be. What else? Self-help is all the help you need. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and those two actually play really well together. Self-help because you're all you need because you're strong enough. Like you are enough. We not because that's how God made you. You just intrinsically have it in there. And so finding your own identity, forging your own path. What else? Because, because truly, as the world would say, there is no sin. Because it's your truth. It's whatever makes you happy. It's whatever. And so even any kind of sense of sin, let alone then even the consequences of it, don't really exist. What else? One, one, of the, one of the, I don't know if I would say promises. I'm trying to 
figure out the wording like you are, but definitely one of the lies that culture has out there is you don't need to think anymore. <laughs> we'll tell you what to think. Don't worry. Just And if you can't find it like this, it must not be worth looking into. I mean, again, I'm... Right. Yeah, I mean, that is, there is a huge promise of instant gratification. You should have it right now. And if you have to wait at all, now it's somebody else's problem. If I even see a little progress bar, I'm like, oh, they must have an Android phone. Like, yes, if you have an Android fault, it's your fault because you're inconveniencing me. If you would just do it my way, like, no. I'm half kidding, but. Yeah. Entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. Which kind of goes into that, hey, you don't need to think deeply about anything because that might bore you. So just on to the next thing, on to the next thing, on to the next thing. Okay? Anything else? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The only things that can really be known are things we can measure. And so experience now counts for nothing. Anything, anything supernatural, which here's the thing, I don't fault the world for this. We even use the word supernatural, which means beyond natural. They're going, I can't touch it, I can't see it, I can't measure it. It must not be real. It must, it's not, certainly not worth anything because science will have all of the answers. And here's the thing. Are we as believers against science? Not at all. I believe science is continually proving God right. Again and again and again. It's proving what he has already said. There's the idea out there that Christians are anti-science. And some may even fall into that. We do not need to be anti-science. But we also believe the greatest truths are not things that we can measure. Yeah. Which, which is very different. Again, from what the world is, is saying. I read on Facebook that it's not, though. <laughs> I know, we, we don't have time to go there. I know, I know. You shouldn't have opened that can of worms. One of the things that, that we're going to talk about here in a minute is how, like, because it's, it's starting to popcorn up, even as just we're talking about these ideas, we know they don't hold water. None of these things, like, truly even make sense. They all contradict each other and everything else. Yet we see people, like, putting the weight of their lives on these things that we know can't hold weight. And I think intrinsically, Everyone knows it. That's why we're always searching. That's why none of us has ever been satisfied with any answers the world gives us to these things. That's why we always need to buy the next product or post another video or yada, 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 whatever it might be. People still believe the world's going to lead me there. They're going to get me this thing that I need. It didn't work this time, but the next time. There's almost a, this like desperation that we all have to have these needs met. 
And part of our job as believers is, okay, let's, let's look critically. Let's start to figure out what are people chasing after because we know the world can't meet that need for them. I think deep down they know it too. All of them know it doesn't really satisfy. No matter what it is I'm chasing, no matter what promise the world has made and how hard I've bought in, it doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. People are looking for these things. The promises the world is making, people are are attracted to them because they were meant to be attracted to them. They were meant to have a sense of truth and freedom, identity. The thing behind science is that we should be able to to grow in knowledge and understanding of the world around us. That's a God-given thing. I don't think God made the world and said, now don't ask any questions. I think he made the world so intricate and complicated, intentionally going, this is going to take them thousands of years, and they're going to realize they haven't even scratched the surface. And I think he loves that, the curiosity behind it. We were created with all of these needs and desires by him, but also only to be met in him. The world cannot satisfy these desires. It will always fall short. And listen, as we talk with people, I said before as I was framing these, there was a lot of they will fall short. And for those people over there, here's the beauty of the gospel. I can come alongside these people and go, I know because it's fallen short for me. I chased after that too. And I know it doesn't satisfy The relationship could never be good enough. The person could never love me enough where I actually felt fully loved. I never had enough amassed where I felt completely secure because someone could always come and take it away. There was never enough people applauding for me. There was never anything I did that was significant enough where I could now sit down for the rest of my life because that need was met. I always needed more until I found him. This is the good news of the gospel, and this is why we need to change the way to reframe our approach to the gospel. If we just come in going, you're a sinner, people are like, we don't play that game anymore. You're actually, it's offensive that you would even say that. Instead of coming along and going, hey, I see that you're trying to meet this need. Like, I get it, I have been there. The only place I've ever found true satisfaction is in his love for me. When, when people see, hey, how come you don't chase after the things like I do? Back to Paul's, or excuse me, Peter's thing in 1 Peter 3. Give a defense. How come you're not running around after this like the rest of us? You know, I used to. But he's met that need for me. I don't have to anymore. He has everything I need, and he has everything you need as well. There are new ways to enter into gospel conversations, and we have to be creative. We have to be critical thinkers looking for what is it they're searching for, and how do I begin to show them that that need is from God and can only be met by God? We must help people see that Jesus offers to meet every need they have. This is good news. So often we forget that it's good news because we're trying to sit there going, how do I tell this person they're a sinner and going to hell? Why doesn't anyone want to listen to the good news that I have? We forget that it's good news. Are they a sinner? They, anyone, like myself before I knew Jesus, like this is not me pointing fingers. Apart from Christ, are we sinners? Are we destined for hell? Did he leave us there? We have good news. Why are we so hesitant to share it with people? So as we start to look at some of these things that we were mentioning before, people are searching for truth. The world has said, don't search anymore. Whatever you come up with in your own mind, that's now true. People know it doesn't hold water. How do we show them what the word has to say about truth, about freedom? We we mentioned self-help. People are looking for help. They're looking to be able to grow and to heal and to move forward. Identity. 
What does the word of God say about these things? Let's, let's start with the first one, with truth. What does the word of God say about truth? His word is true. What else? His word is true. He is true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What was the last what was the one over here? That if we hold to the truth, Jesus said, John 8, 31 and 32, that his truth will set us free. There is truth. It is God-given, and it is the most freeing, life-giving thing you could ever find. But you don't have it within yourself. To be able to come up to somebody and go, man, I see you seeking after the truth, and I love that in you. You have this incredible desire to know what's true, and I think that's so admirable. What have you been finding? And to actually listen, and again, that we have, it, all of this assumes that we have been living in proximity, living our faith out loud with the people we live, work, and play with. So we can have these conversations, and they go, here's, you know, here's what I've been searching after or whatever. What about you? Like you t- Things are different for you. You don't seem to be maybe as lost in the woods as the rest of us. And we're able to tell them, you know, here's what his word says about truth. Here's what I've found to be the truest thing you could ever know. His love for me. Do you guys understand? It's a different approach to the gospel than many of us were taught. You don't have to get a napkin and draw some things on it. That may be helpful at some point in time, but that's probably not going to be the starting place for a lot of us. What about freedom? What does this word say about freedom? We just mentioned one. Some of these are going to overlap, which is the beauty of the word. Okay. That, that truth, and, and to become the person that God has called us, created us to be, means living within the boundaries that he's given us. And people are going to, wait, that's not freedom. That can't be freedom. Somebody once said, uh, one of the first ways that I heard this put is they said there was a fish who wanted freedom one time, so he jumped out of the fishbowl. How free was he? As long as he stayed within the confines of the fishbowl, he had everything he needed. The confines weren't there to take things away from the fish. They were there to keep the fish from being harmed. <laughs> like the Iwana games. Running is only good if your parents say it's good, and I don't know. Yeah, that we will only find freedom through surrender to one greater than us. Does that sound like something the world tells us? No. But here's the thing. When people see the freedom that you live with, They're going to hear it, and they may not go, yep, I get it, that makes total sense, but they're going to go, I can't argue with it, because I want what you have. These things coming together. Identity. What does the Word of God say about identity? We were created in His image. The whole conversation begins with, we have identity because He gave it to us. We were created to be like him. The whole thing behind identity is like meaning and purpose. We were created to be like him. Shirley, what did you say? Same, same. He dreamed each of us up and made us come true. Psalm 139 says that he formed us together. It's this incredibly personal and intimate thing where he says he formed us in our mother's womb. He has known us since before we ever drew breath. He created each of us to be the unique person that we desire to be. Like even having that desire to have meaning and purpose comes from him and can only be found and fulfilled in him. Understanding these motivations gives us on-ramps to gospel conversations taking the time and caring about the person you are with enough to go, what is it they're actually seeking after? And how does God desire to meet that need in their lives? Choosing to to reframe things and and live with these lenses on gives you brand new on-ramps to gospel conversations with people. 
And now we're able to move into the gospel story because we go, man, identity is only found in Jesus. Like the, the meaning, the purpose you're seeking for, he created you to desire that. And he has meaning waiting for you. He wants to show it to you, but there's a problem. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, now we can get into kind of our traditional gospel story because now people are going, I want what Jesus offers. Until people actually want what he offers, they don't care what he paid to give it to them. Does that make sense? I see it in you, and you're telling me it's available for me. How do I get it? Sin is in the way. And here's the best news you've ever heard in your life. He took care of that problem for you too. Through his death and resurrection, he paid the price for your sin so that now you can have everything you were created to have. So now you can live this fulfilled life, this free life in submission to the king who always puts what you need above even at times what, what he wants. Not wants, excuse me, what he needs as we saw Jesus do. He loves us sacrificially. He can be trusted with us because he dealt with our sin. The barrier we put in place, he took care of. That's a compelling message. That's good news. We have to help people see that they actually want it because they've probably come to church before. In our culture, they've probably been inside of a church before. Maybe they heard the gospel, maybe. But was it in any way compelling or was it just somebody telling them they were sinners and going to hell? Or they've, they've met Christians before and the hypocrites and the whatever. But they, I pray, have never met a believer like you. Someone who is living their faith in such a way that it demands an explanation. Someone who is living on mission with the king everywhere they work, live, and play. And someone who has come prepared to show the gospel in a way that people can actually understand it to show the benefits of the gospel. Here is why Jesus died on the cross, not just so that you would know that fact, but because he desires to give you these gifts in your life, and he had to break down the wall to get there. That is good news that people want. On Easter Sunday, I said that I hate that we only celebrate Easter once a year because the Easter story is literally for every day, for every believer. The good news that he died for my sins today and rose so that today I can live resurrected. And, and it becomes this living out the gospel, like Kim was saying, on a regular daily basis that people will see and be intrigued by. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians that to some were the scent of life, to others the scent of death. When they smell Jesus on us because we're living out the gospel. I have been forgiven and today I live raised. People will look at that and go, I don't know what you call it, but I want that. But it has to start with us living it out first. Living it before them, not just knowing it, like she said, not just trying hard. 
But each day going, you have forgiven me afresh today. You have given me new life today. And may the world have eyes to see. We've got to reimagine the mission that God has given us. It's going to be outside these four walls. And we have to reframe the gospel message in a way that our culture can hear. And it's going to be hard work, and you're going to have to do it differently than I do it. You're going to approach it differently than I approach it. You're going to see things in the people's lives that you work, live, and play with that I'm not going to see. And you're going to have to go, Lord, what's the on-ramp? Holy Spirit, you got to open the door. What do they truly need to hear? Because I can't just throw in a little Jesus died on the cross for your sins bomb and run away. What do they truly need to hear today? What is the need that they are searching to have met? And how do I begin to show them that that is found in you? That will change everything. We will see the kingdom advance if we live with these lenses on, viewing life in this way, viewing our relationships in this way, will change everything. We will see new lives transformed. People move from death to life in our very midst. We will see people be baptized into the faith because they have given their lives to Jesus, something maybe they've never heard before. You know, I just never heard it put that way before, whatever it might be. We will see lives transformed If we're not, what the heck are we doing here? What is the purpose of any of this if that is not our goal? If that is not what we're moving towards, striving for, praying for every day, what are we doing? And listen, I'm preaching to myself. I am guilty. This goes on the back burner because I got other stuff going on. Lord, forgive me. I want to live life every day going right now, today. Somebody would turn and accept you as Lord if only somebody would tell them. The harvest is white. It's ready. If only workers would be sent out. Let me pray, and then we're going to worship. Lord Jesus. May we live our lives like the people around us' lives depend on it. Like their very souls depend on it. Not because it's all on us and we got to do the work. Like, no. But because we've been called to partner with the one who truly can change lives. You have said, Lord Jesus, that the church is plan A and there is no plan B. You will build your church. You will move through your church. May we stop fighting. May we stop with excuses. May we allow you, God, to show us the way. May we be changed by your gospel, God, every morning. You say your mercies are new every morning. May we begin to realize the power in that. May that transform our lives, God, and the ripple effect to everyone we come in contact with. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.